Hi, listeners. It's Risa jumping in to say June is National Gun Violence Awareness Month. To that end, The Visible Voices is doing some focused episodes on this topic. And today's is a rerun of one recorded in 2021 with Drs. Selwyn Rogers and Everett Lynn. Here we go. Historically, gun violence has been treated as a policing problem um, and not looking at it from a public health lens. And by that, I mean looking at the lived experience, built environment, upstream factors that contribute to gun violence. Um, and there's been overwhelming focus on the incident, the, the gun, the uh, person who's um, struck and not the context in which that injury occurs. This is the Visible Voices podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Risa Lewis. Before we get started, here's a word from the creators of the Emergency Mind podcast. Hi there, podcast listeners. We all face stress and emergencies. Join us on the Emergency Mind podcast as we explore how to apply knowledge under pressure with a variety of professionals, both inside and outside of medicine. Learn more at theemergencymind.com. Hi, listeners. Welcome to today's episode where we're talking about gun violence and thinking about gun violence through a preventive, solutions-oriented public health lens. Public health is the science of protecting the safety and improving the health of communities through education, policymaking, and research for disease and injury prevention. My two guests are Dr. Selwyn Rogers and Dr. Everett Lynn. Selwyn grew up in St. Croix, and he came to the United States for his higher education. He's currently the James E. Bowman Jr. Professor of Surgery. He's the chief of the Section of Trauma and Acute Care Surgery and the founding director of the Trauma Center at the University of Chicago. Selwyn and I first met when I was in training in Boston. He was the chief resident on the General Surgery Service, and I was the rotating resident. So I had the luck of seeing firsthand his leadership style, and his mentorship. My second guest is Dr. Everett Lynn. Everett is an emergency physician. He's formerly the clinical director and director of faculty affairs and development at the Brigham and Women's Hospital Department of Emergency Medicine. He's also formerly the chair of the Department of Emergency Medicine at North Shore Medical Center in Boston. Everett was born in Jamaica, and he too came to the United States for his higher education. Now, it was quite a feat and quite a treat to get both of these gentlemen to join me in conversation. They are friends for over 20 years. Oh, I forgot to add a thing about Everett. Everett was everybody's favorite attending when they worked with him as a resident. He also won the Emergency Medicine Educator of the Year Award every single year. Okay, I digress. In the episode, yes, we talk a little bit about statistics and data and facts, but more so, you hear the actual experience of Selwyn and Everett and what it's like to work in the emergency department, work in critical care situations, and work in the setting of gun violence. We're talking about years of experience in cities such as Boston, Chicago, Galveston, Texas, Los Angeles, and more. When the episode gets started, Selwyn is talking about when he's first started at the University of Chicago, and he's contacted by a journalist from the French newspaper Le Monde. It was January of 2017. I had just newly arrived at the University of Chicago Medicine um, in order to stand up an adult level one trauma center on the south side of Chicago. Um, by way of con- context, uh, there had not been 
an adult level one trauma center on the south side of Chicago for over 30 years. And in the context of that um, reality, there obviously was a lot of trauma on the south side of Chicago. There was in many urban settings throughout the United States. Um, in this particular um, interview request from Lamont, talk, talk about the, the uh, level one trauma center, it was, I was struck back uh, by the reporter's request. He wanted me to take him on a tour of the South Side of Chicago and show him some gangbangers. And I was like, what do you mean gangbangers? Um, he said, well, you know, sh- show me where all the people who are getting shot are. And it really set me back because I was like, well, this is about trauma. This is about social determinants such as poverty, inequality, and lack of equity, and how that drives people's being at risk for trauma, notably gun violence. And in many ways, he wanted to sensationalize this as it was bad people doing bad things to each other versus thinking about the larger context in which this trauma was occurring. So I basically respectfully declined the interview because I didn't think that this was going to lead to anything fruitful. Yeah. Any regrets regarding declining that? Absolutely none. I mean, I think one of the things that I think we have to do is change a narrative around what violence is, what trauma is. And only by changing the narrative will we be able to have a lasting impact. Just before the episode started, we were talking about Venn diagrams of overlap. And when I think about and look at the two of you, um, there's some commonalities. Um, You both have the experience of being parents to three sons. You both have the experience of childhood being outside the U.S. Um, And I'd like to ask, based on your experience as a trauma surgeon, your experience, Everett, as an emergency physician, coming to the U.S., parenting, fathering three sons, how has the work that you do and what you see on a daily basis influenced the way you care for your children? Selwyn, why don't you take it first and then Everett? Uh, that's a great question. Um, I, I have um, three African-American sons. They're aged uh, 25, about to be 26 on December 1st, uh, 22 and uh, 19. And, you, you know, they're all currently, um, you know, out in the world doing what they want to do. Um, but certainly um, when they were younger, I often gave them various vignettes of stories of how um, they need to behave in the world, if you will. You know, as my eldest son, who's now 25, going on 26, um, was the first to learn how to drive. I remember giving him the lesson about, you know, if you are driving and the police stop you, you need to keep your hands on the wheel at all times. Um, Be very respectful uh, you don't know what's going to happen next, and you can't take any chances. Um, and you know, as someone who works closely with um, the police department <clears throat> with respect to taking care of victims of violence and 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 crime, um, it's sad that I had to give that lesson to my three uh, sons. Um, and you know, it's one that that many people would 
probably not even think about having if they weren't a person of color. You know, I'll give another uh, concrete example of an observation that my middle son made when he and I were on a trip to Portland, um, Oregon for celebrating his birthday. It happened to be during the the weekend of um, the Women's March in Portland. And um, he, we were in an elevator together and my middle son is 6'5", so he's a bit imposing. And he, a woman walked, white woman walked in the elevator and he lowered his shoulders. He um, uh, made himself more welcoming. And it was so striking to me knowing that I know him well that I asked him afterwards, why did he do that? And he said, well, I wanted to her to feel comfortable in an elevator with two black men. And it's it's a process that he has internalized and he's done somewhat instinctively living in an America that's still divided. Thank you. Everett. I don't think my story is any different from uh, Selwyn. Uh, I one of the biggest fear I had when my boys were young was the fear of not seeing them coming back through the door when they leave. And it was constant teaching. Um, not only did I tell them to put their hands on the steering wheel, usually a law enforcement asks for your driver's license and registration. And I, I, I usually teach my sons to say to them, I'm going into the glove box. Do you want me to get the registration or do you want to get it? Um, and it was a defensive mechanism because I didn't want my son or sons being killed because they thought he was reaching for a firearm or something like that. So I did uh, the same things that Selwyn did. And um, I also... Um, was a bit more, I, I can't say a bit more, but I was very protective. I, I, I made sure just as a parent, I was there in certain places when they were getting off the school bus in a totally white neighborhood uh, to pick them up or dropping them off and, and, and watching them get on the bus because the trustworthy part was just not there. I was always a bit in fear that um, they may leave through my door and may never come back. So it's similar stories until this day. You both are intentional about the way you mentor, who you mentor, and probably by whom you mentor. And this is before mentoring, sponsoring, coaching became trendy, and there were lots of Harvard Business Review articles about it and books written. And, you know, uh, Everett, you and I met in 1997, and um, you are someone to whom many people came for advice and input and mentorship. And uh, what I saw and what I know is um, there's, an, there's an element of organic connection with people, but sometimes it's intentional. And you intentionally made sure women, women of color, men, men of color, specifically students of color, uh, were mentored and you spoke to them and you let them know how to help navigate healthcare and our healthcare training. I, I reviewed your CV, Selwyn, and your listing of, of mentees is similar. You've mentored a lot of women and a lot of students of color. And uh, I'd like each of you to comment on how you see mentoring. And also, uh, if you can share a story uh, of mentorship, not someone you mentored, but someone who's been a mentor to you, no matter who that was. 
Everett, why don't you start and then Selwyn? Yeah, it's a little bit difficult because I sort of, um, it, I'll tackle the last part of your question first. Um, I really had no good mentor per se. Um, uh, and it's funny, uh, I think it was a few years ago, um, I was on the Harvard campus and somebody says, well, uh, Dr. Lin, who was your mentor? And I bust out in a laugh because I really didn't have one and I didn't really have any, to be honest with you. Um, I patchworked and I think most of the things that I did, um, it probably similar to Selwyn growing up in the island, education was always at the forefront from our parents and family. It was always about education um, uh, we, the, the emphasis on education was how you lift yourself up and move forward and how you progress, which is what I instill in my children to this day. Um, but um, I, I, I sort of patched work and um, uh, seek advice from different people at different times. I, I think in terms of mentoring people, I think it was just a natural acumen for me. I didn't it started out that uh, people just sort of gravitated towards me and um, I just developed in advising people. And some of it was from personal perseverance and just things that I've been through and, and not letting them step in potholes uh, that I have stepped in um, uh, along the way. I'm a couple years um, behind you, Everett, and I, I had the benefit of... Um having mentors like you, um, you know, it was striking that sometimes just the presence, even though we weren't in the same department, but having an, another African-American man who was a leader in the Department of Emergency Medicine um, was a form of informal mentoring. Um, but like Everett, I will also echo that probably my biggest mentor are, are um, you know, my mom and dad. You know, I think that they instilled in me a certain sense of self, uh, a certain um, comfort, comfortable in my own skin, if, if you will, um, that uh, progressed throughout my academic life. I mean, I didn't start off thinking I wanted to be a professor of surgery or chief of, of trauma. I mean, I started off, I wanted to be a good person. And um, that was really instilled in, in, in my parents. Um, and I still try to sell that same set of values in, in my children. Self-discipline, uh, self-discipline. Yeah, yeah. And a degree of resilience, too. I mean, mm -hmm. I think that, that sometimes people uh, forget that it's not about uh, the failure, but it's about getting up again after the failure. And yes. you know, a big part of mentorship is encouraging people that, after they have a failure or setback, that doesn't define them. Um, and uh, that's a big part of mentorship, but it's also a big part of sponsorship, supporting people um, when you, they don't even know that you're supporting them um, behind the scenes. And to your question about um, uh, why uh, mentoring is such an important part um, of my professional life, it was because I didn't have many people that looked like me uh, throughout my uh, training and early faculty um, development. And it was very important to me to, to see more people who 
look like me, irrespective of what their uh, diversity of thought would be, um, because I think just having that diversity of presence is uh, goes a long way oftentimes in, uh, in changing how people view others. When I was starting off my training at the Brigham, um, there was a single African-American man um, who was ahead of me in training. Um, and, you know, now it's probably about 30, 40% of uh, people of color at the Brigham in surgery, uh, never mind in other fields. So, you know, I think there's work that has been done that's been successful, partly because of mentoring, but I also do think that, um, that we still have a long way to go. If I may take 10 seconds, uh, there is a story, a resounding story that I always mentioned. I was in a hospital in Boston. We'll leave the name out, but we know what it is. And um, I, I remember this so vividly because I've told the story over and over. And an African-American lady came in and I was caring for her. She was deeply sick. And um, she said to me, when she let the other people walk out of the room first, residents and nurses, and she says, Dr. Lynn, can I speak to you for a minute? And I stayed behind, and she says, this is a true story. Um, she says, you're a doctor here? And I said, yes, ma'am. And she says, I didn't know they hired black doctors here. And I was shocked when she said that. And she says, I said, yes, ma'am. And I said, not only that, I'm in charge of the emergency department. I'm the attending on one of the directors here. And she was floored. She says, I've been getting my care here for 28 years, and I've never had a black physician cared for me. Well, I just want to tell you, she had dead bowel, okay? And um, Selwyn was not on that night, and um, Selwyn was at home, and it was a weekend night, and... Um, I, I called Selwyn because of her comfort level that she uh, exhibited to me. And um, I, I asked him if he could come in and we could work it out with the surgeon on call. And I can truly tell you that within 20 minutes to half an hour, I had her ready for the operating room and Selwyn was at her bedside. I, I can't, um, and that story always resonated with me. There are not many people on a weekend, even if, you're a dedicated surgeon who would do that. So your compassionate leadership stands out, and it's no surprise that you are where you are. But I wanted also to ask the question about this public health tragedy, if you have um, seen any difference since you've been in Chicago. And I just keep reading. Chicago tend to make the headlines every single week about the number of deaths and the number of people shot and uh, I read re a recent New York Times article where the number of people who have been shot this year is much more than last year and more than 2019. And I just wanted to get your sort of take on how things are up there and what are the differences that you have seen since you started your work in terms of outreach with the community and so on. Yeah, it's a, it's a, it's a question that keeps me up at night. Um, we have certainly seen in all U.S. cities probably on the order of a 30 to 40% higher rate of gun violence 
um, in each of our uh, urban settings. Here in Chicago, specifically between 2019 and 2020, there was a 50% surge in, in gun violence at the University of Chicago specifically. Um, we went from seeing about uh, 3,000 trauma activations a year to seeing 5,000 trauma activations a year, 40% of which was um, penetrating trauma. Um, 90% of that was gun violence. Um, and the the numbers are staggering um, because each victim has multiple people connected to that person. Um and uh, it's a larger community around that individual. With respect to how it's been approached, you know, the story of gun violence in Chicago is is one that um, became highly politicized during the 2020 election. Um, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I, I don't need to, to to go more into that, but I, I think that that clearly uh, Chicago became more and more of a symbol of, of gun violence, uh, even though the rates in St. Louis and Detroit and, and um, Philadelphia are just as high or a little higher. Um, having said that, historically, gun violence has been treated as a policing problem um, and not looking at it from a public health lens and by that, I mean looking at the lived experience, built environment, upstream factors that contribute to gun violence. Um, and there's been overwhelming focus on the incident, the, the gun, the uh, person who's um, struck, and not the context in which that injury occurs. Um, taking a public health framework you will focus on a combination of preventative factors and risk factors um, to help change the course of a public of um, gun violence and specifically addressing upstream factors that lead to gun violence in the first place, a lack of economic opportunities, um, inequities and educational opportunities, uh, lack of jobs, all of those things are the backdrop for seeing high rates of intentional gun violence on top of the fact that we have a preponderance of guns in our society. Yeah. To your point, violence is complex. And you really, there are a lot of things I love about what you just shared. Number one, you essentially gave a nice definition of public health you've highlighted that as surgeons, yeah, we can fix blood vessels, we can sew someone up, but that's not treating their soul. And that's not filling out the experience of what happens when they leave the hospital doors. I'm wondering if you can elaborate a little bit on that. Certainly. You know, one of the things that um, trauma care has been focused on, obviously, is stopping the bleeding, controlling the uh, damaged um, um, bowel, uh, controlling of uh, hemorrhage and sepsis. Um, but that doesn't take care of the whole human being. And I think the, the at times missed opportunity is taking the incident that occurs in the context of uh, trauma and using that as a teaching moment, if you will, or, or a moment to um, 
wrap services around the individual and their family in order to try to make a difference in that person's life. Uh, the analogy from a medical perspective that I, I often give is um, having someone come in with a heart attack and not addressing their hypertension and their smoking history and their sedentary lifestyle. Um, and we would think that's an anathema not to take care of those um, aspects that are risk factors for uh, repeated um, myocardial injury. Um, you know, violence is in many ways uh, similar. Um, there are certain risk factors um, and certain protective factors, protective factors like family and church and, and um, entities that lift people up. But there are also risk factors. Uh, living in a chronically uh, disinvested community is a risk factor for being a victim of gun violence. Um, and um, what we um, at my current institution try to do is we try to wrap around services around the individual and their family uh, who've been victims of gun violence and connecting them with resources in the community that they may or may not know of. Um, but we basically have a kind of a warm handoff, if you will, above and beyond providing direct patient care. Um, and with the thought being that patient care doesn't end uh, when the patient leaves the hospital, but you know, it's a part of the continuum of their life. I think the other thing that I, I, I really hope that we as a, a nation embrace is thinking more of primary prevention. I mean, what we really want to do is not let people be shot in the first place. And some of that involves um, some policies around uh, gun um, possession. But I think others um, will need to involve uh, how do we invest more equitably in communities broadly um, and, and give uh, especially young people more opportunities to make a difference in their lives. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I like this concept a lot of the wraparound services. It makes sense. It's holistic. I wonder if you think there's this element of othering. Uh, HIV uh, in the 80s didn't get the attention that COVID did. And uh, gun violence, especially when it's put in this context of like, oh, Chicago, oh, urban, oh, lower so socioeconomic status neighborhoods, that's the other. That's not me, my family, my children, my neighborhood. And um, I think there's been literally a call to attention by subject matter experts such as yourself that, no, this is everybody and this is affecting everybody. But I still see the resistance, which is why I asked. There is a sense of of the other. I, he I heard one person say once, if this was all happening in um, a in white communities, uh, white wealthy communities, there'd be a lot more focus on fixing the problem. Um, specifically in Chicago, it says you know it's a great city, great American city, city of seventy seven neighborhoods, but specifically gun violence is hyper endemic in some communities more than others, mostly on the south and west sides of the city. And those are the communities that are primarily black and brown communities uh, in the city of Chicago. Um, there is somewhat of the other. Uh, it's happening over there, not in my backyard. Um, I'm concerned about it, but it doesn't really affect me in a daily way. Um, it affects everyone. I mean, I think uh, it's it's not uh, unique to um, uh, 
black and brown communities. I think it affects all of uh, all of uh, the city. The other thing that I think is often not discussed when we mention gun violence is the high rate of um, self-inflicted gun violence um, in the context of suicides, and disproportionately that happens in in um, among white older males. Um, but we don't talk about that in an epidemic way. We talk about that in an episodic way. Um, but that's similarly um, a tragedy where we uh, aren't focused enough on mental health and the protection of those who may um, risk taking their own life and finding ways to help them as well. To that question, uh, as as Selwyn was answering, uh, I was wondering if the model that he had has in Chicago and the wraparound services and the community reach out services, if that's something that's adaptable to other cities that anyone could employ, or is, is that something that could import to other communities and cities? There are lots of good people doing good work in community, um, you know, be it, um, you know, after school programs or, um, you know, teaching kids how to to box or you know um, other sporting uh, engagements. Um, what we often don't do is con- is connect the isolated hospital to the community, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and and I think finding ways to do that uh, in a, in effective way is very important. I want to shift the focus to something we've addressed indirectly, which is the toll that trauma and gun violence takes on healthcare workers, on physicians, such as Dr. Selwyn Rogers, such as Dr. Everett Lynn, such as Dr. Risa Lewis. Uh, I'm going to read a quote um, and ask each of you to sort of discuss how you've uh, maintained self, uh, maintained that self-actualization and overcome times of burnout. So this is from your Judiciary Committee report. At trauma centers across the country, we have seen the pain with our own eyes. We have cleaned the blood from our own hands. Sometimes the blood soaks through our scrubs and socks. We can wash away the blood, but the pain stays with us. I cannot fully grasp the tragic impact of the lives lost. Yet I'm still hopeful. If we take concrete actions now, if we do the small things now, then we will create the big changes later. These changes will stem the tide of gun violence that has become such a devastating problem in our country. And there was an article uh, from Philadelphia that talked a bit about uh, work-life balance uh, and your experience, Selwyn. So, yeah, with whatever you feel comfortable sharing, like what what did that look like for you? And now that you're the other side of that, uh, what what how do you instruct your mentees, for example, or your trainees, or you know, what do you how do you keep yourself in check? Yeah, it's it's a it's a constant battle, a daily battle. Lisa. Um, when I um, unfortunately when I go to Trauma Bay uh, here on the south side of Chicago, eighty five percent of the time it's a black male, usually between the ages of eighteen and twenty five, twenty six, who's the victim of gun violence, um, and. Um, as I relayed at the start of our session today, my kids are 19, 22, and 
and uh, 25 on the way to be 26. So they're right in that. Any doctors, by the way? Any doctors? No physicians. No physicians. They all think, "Hey, Dad, you work too hard. I don't. I don't want to do that." Uh, but but I, um, I I think every time I head to the trauma bay, this could be my son, um, and I, and that. Um, you know, I have to suspend that in the moment of taking care of the critically injured person. Um, but when um, all that we have tried to do fails and the person dies, and I have to go talk to that mother, that father, that brother, uh, that sister about their lost son or daughter or uh, lost um, child, um it hits me. Um, and it hits me in the context when I hear um, the cry, when I hear them say, you know, go back in. You, you can find a way to get them to survive or, or you know, the, the, the sense of hopelessness that the person has in that moment. Um, it tugs at you and um, you may not uh, have the moment then to process that but it catches up with you. And uh, the way I try to, to deal with it, I have a very supportive family. And I talk to them about how my day was and, you know, I don't sugarcoat it. I, you know, share with my wife, Kimberly, exactly what happened and, and how it made me feel. Um, and that's very helpful. You don't keep it all in. You actually get it out. Um, and um, with respect to my uh mentees and, and trainees, I encourage them about the importance of self-care, of, um, of not um, keeping it all in, um, and also you know, highly encourage people when they're feeling um, blue or down to seek um, professional uh, counseling uh, with mental health providers, psychologists, uh, psychiatrists, because I, I do think it does take a, a personal toll on us over the course of, of time, especially if we don't uh, share with others. Everett, your thoughts about that? You've been doing it a little longer than me. Yeah, I think it's about the same uh, Selwyn and Risa. I think um, I can share a couple of quick stories. One is that... Um, Gun violence leads to a lot of teen deaths and children deaths. It's a leading cause of death in the U.S. And um, uh, early in my career, when I when I started seeing children die, it was gut wrenching for me. And um, I just remember uh, there were times when I had to talk to a mother or parents about the the death of their child and. One of the disturbing things in the emergency department is that you're caring for about 50 patients at the same time and you have five minutes to spend with them, no time to spend with them. You know, you have to move on because there are other sick patients waiting for you. And um, it wasn't ideal, but uh, seeing a child die is just, it, it just, it, it took me out. And um, uh, it was hard to deal with that and very difficult. So, uh, I shied my career of everything that I've experienced. I moved my career more to the adult side of caring and trauma based on trauma units and emergency department because it was just so devastating and difficult to watch children die. And uh, similar to Selwyn, I stay close to my family and my children. And um, one of the things that all of this has taught me 
Uh, I use running just to decompensate because I run a lot and I just use it to try to keep me level and keep my thoughts level and to help me uh, with my stress levels. But most of all, I do what Selwyn does. I talk to my family and I speak to my children a lot. And um, to the people I mentor, uh, my mentees, I I talk about work-life balance as much as I can and for them to seek help when they can. But the single most important thing that I've gotten doing this for over 30 years is the value of time. I've got grown more and more to respect the value of time, each minute of every day of every hour. And I, I try to, to, be, to, to make sure that whatever I'm doing with my time that is either serving others, which I think is really critical, is affecting somebody else's life in a positive way uh, and service to others. As one person says, we're at our best when we're of service to others. And I tend to believe in that, but I, I share with you the value of time and the importance of time and how little uh, people tend to look at that sometimes. We always think we have time, but that's not true, isn't it? We always think we have time. So um, just seeing so many deaths in trauma bays and trauma units and emergency departments has just um, reinforced that premonition. I couldn't agree with more. It's uh, the one commodity that we... um don't have enough of. It's uh, very precious. And uh, when you see a life taken away from you, it just reminds you of, of that reality. What a conversation. And I think like what I said at the beginning of the episode, it was quite a treat and quite a feat to get these two together on one podcast episode. So here's the deal. Gun violence affects everybody. From my perspective, gun violence is all of our responsibility. We all have a duty, a responsibility, and we can all make a difference. Join me next week where I'm in conversation with Dr. Carol Bernstein and with the founders of the Dr. Lorna Breen Heroes Foundation. We talk about physician mental health and physician suicide prevention. Talk to you then. The Visible Voices podcast amplifies voices both known and unknown discussing topics of healthcare equity and current trends. Our production team includes Stacy Gitlin, Dr. Giuliano DePorto, and me, Dr. Risa E. Lewis. Please find me on social media at Risa E. Lewis and through the website, thevisiblevoicespodcast.com. If you like the podcast, please rate and review us. Share the podcast with a friend today. Thank you so much for listening, and as always, to be continued.